0: All right, so we like asking questions before we start up a sermon. And today, a lot of our talk is going to be revolving around conflict resolution. So um, I know, great questions, right? Super vulnerable. So who was the last person you had a conflict with? Uh, If they're sitting next to you, just pat them on the back. If they're across the room, just point at them. And how was it resolved? And then second question, how was conflict resolved in your family growing up? What were some healthy and unhealthy tendencies that you have adopted from your family? So I think about my family, and um, I, th- I feel like we've improved a lot as a family, um, you know, resolving conflict. But growing up, it was hard to separate conflict from anger. You know, there was I felt like it was always married together. It was hard to sit down and, and have this um, conf- confrontation without it being explosive. But there was some healthy things about my family also. I I really looked up to my dad because he was always the first one to apologize. And I remember even being a little kid, uh, five, six years old, we were getting a fight, I would slam the door, and he would come into my room and say sorry. And I thought that was such a beautiful model of of healthy conflict resolution. And so we're going to just give you guys two or three minutes. I'd love for you to meet someone you don't know, um, but just make sure everyone around you has a group. And if you could just kind of be in groups of twos or threes, and then I'll come back and we'll look into God's Word together. All right. Thanks so much for sharing, everyone. I know some of you guys are just in the middle of your story and getting heated and stuff. But, um, yeah, thanks for sharing. I think, I think all of us probably have someone that comes to mind when we think about conflict. And I feel like if we're not able to do this well as a community and as individuals, It it hurts us. It hurts the longevity of a relationship. I have some friends who have a really poor time doing conflict resolution. And because of that, they've kind of turned over one friend after another because they're not able to push through the hard times. And I think about our community, and I feel like we're past the honeymoon phase. A lot of us have been in in here for a year or half a year, have become close friends. And and I, I think we've started to see the flaws of each other. And we started to be annoyed sometimes. And I feel like this is a timely message for our community. I hope that we could push through a lot of these things and be able to be great at uh, resolving conflict. Also, I think about when we don't resolve conflict well, these are our tendencies. So when we don't resolve conflict well, we default into doing all of these other things. We can villainize someone and start speaking poorly of them and the way we construct The story in our own head and the way that we share the story becomes us versus them, hero versus villain, abuser versus victim. And when we don't resolve conflict well, we can also start labeling people. And we see them just kind of with one dimension. And we can't look at them holistically anymore. We stop seeing their strengths. We stop communicating. And every time we see them, it's like there's this label across their chest that says, you know, I get angry all the time, or I'm lazy, or um, I hate you, you know? And that's all we see. It's right in front of us. Other times, um, we default into being divisive. Not only do we see them as a villain or through this lens and label, but we're trying to get other people to see them that way as well. Some of us do that intentionally, but I think most of us, we do it unintentionally. And we're just trying to paint this picture of someone because we're sharing our pain Or sharing the way that we see them. We can avoid them. We could gossip about them. And some of this is happening in the Philippian church. We're just kind of steadily walking through the book of Philippians. And last week we talked about enemies of the cross or enemies of the church. And that's one way in which the Philippian church is feeling pressure. There's governmental pressure um, for them to conform and worship the gods of the city, worship Caesar. There's pressure with Judaizers who want them to um, be circumcised and stick to all these other rituals that they've married with the gospel. But then here, I feel like maybe Paul is most concerned with the internal conflict. Because when I look at families and organizations and churches, They usually don't fold because of external pressure or conflict. It's usually what's going on on the inside that destroys a community. And here we have two women who are part of the leadership of the church. The Church of Philippi had many women leaders. I would say they were founded on significant women. Paul goes in and he he meets Lydia who uh, dies... Uh, clothing and is very wealthy, and they probably planted the church in her house. He delivers a girl from a demon, and she's part of his core team, this other family, jailer's family, and then these two women are mentioned. And I think the first thing that I enjoy and see Paul do here is that he reminds them and the community that they're both part of family, that they're both saved their names are written in the book of life, that they're both true companions. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with you, Eodia, and I plead with you, Syndicate, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, to help these women, since you have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers, whose names are written, whose names are in the book of life. And so here, you know, there's this probably shock and awe that Paul's singling them out, right? Like if I just picked out two people and was like, by name, stand up, make up, you know, say, I'm sorry. That's a little awkward. And, and uh, when Paul wrote letters, they were Uh, they were read out to the congregation by the elders. So these two women are being called out, but at the same time, like I said, they're being honored. And their faith and their salvation and their significance to the community is being elevated. But at the same time, Paul is recognizing that they're having a hard time coming together. And he says, hey, not only um, am I exhorting you to be of the same mind but I'm asking people around you um, to help you in that process. And so I hope that today when we, we look at this text, we see the context, but we're really just going to flush it out in some practical ways to resolve conflict. Usually I like my main points and my applications to point directly to the text, but I'm kind of done here. So we're going to move into just... Kind of my journey and hopefully some principles of how we uh, can resolve conflict. And some of these principles are from the text, but some are not. All right, here we go. So as we go through conflict resolution, I think the first thing that maybe we don't do, uh, we think about conflict resolution as, as starting from when we sit down with the person in front of us. But what I've noticed in doing this well is that it actually starts in my own head. That I need to come to this good space in which I can uh, sit with someone and and want to go through this process for their sake. So a lot of the process, most of the process for me is actually by myself and with the Lord. And so would you just kind of hold that person in your head that you are having a conflict with or also think about maybe when you're the third party, when you're maybe Clement or one of the um, church elders, how you can help someone as they are in conflict with another person reflect on some of these questions because as a community i think it's it's easy to be in the middle of conflict and not really know what to do or even exasper- exacerbate the situation but instead how can we help a person reflect or even more so reflect on our own self while we are in the middle of conflict so one thing i noticed is you know Aside from someone like flicking me off, which happened last week, or punching me in the face, or you know being mean to Nina, I, I just realized that a lot of times I don't like people because of me. And most of the time when we don't like someone, we feel like it's their fault, right? They're being a jerk, or they're not nice, or they did something. But I realized that most of the people I don't like, it's actually more or a lot of me in there versus it just being about the other person, and sometimes I realize that because other people want to be their friend, which is very confusing, right, because I don't want to be their friend. But then I realize, oh, maybe other people like them, and maybe I don't like them because of me. So some people in my encounter with them, they'll start to trigger my trauma, and trauma means that I experience something in front of me, but I don't react to it in this specific experience. I'm actually reacting it, to it in the whole history of my upbringing and the other times that this incident has occurred. So for example, someone will be a little mad at me, but I will respond emotively like he's yelling at me full volume because that's a place of trauma in my life. So as I'm experiencing this like low-level anger, I, I also experience like my mom yelling at me, my goldfish staring me down, my classmate making fun of me, my teacher being upset, right? So that's what trauma does. And there's certain people in our life that trigger a trauma for us, but for other people, there's no trigger. And we experience them in a way that's um, deeper and more traumatic than others. Other times I don't like someone because they wrestle or they have a weakness in one of my strengths. And I have this pride in me that says, man, I have no idea why you would be bothered by that. Or I don't know why you're acting this way, right? Because I don't struggle with it. So for example, you might not know this, but I actually work really hard. (laughs) I have a high work ethic and I can do a lot of hours. And I don't get people who are lazy or who are slothful. And when they share that with me, I just... I just there's this part of me that just kind of feels like, man, just pick, up, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. That's a real expression, right? I don't think I've ever owned boots, but it sounds really good. And, you know, go work and, and work hard and grind it out. And there's a sense of pride that I don't like people who have contradicting values to me, even though some of my values has its downsides as well. And lastly, there's people who rub me the wrong way because they, ha- they share my weaknesses, But especially, they share the weaknesses in which I am blind to or I am in denial of. But because they have it, it's sitting in front of me, I actually have an allergic reaction to them because I'm reacting to myself, almost in this subconscious way. And so um, there's people that I've met who are you know, talk about themselves all the time and really prideful. And I'm like, man, I really don't like those people. And then a year later, I'm like, man, I really don't like me, (laughs) you know? And when we are able to do this well, we're able to say it's not just about this person. But when I'm in conflict, when I don't like someone, that there's parts of me involved as well. And then the second space I try to reflect on is uh, my own humility. And um, it's pretty easy. I just pull out the three worst sins I've ever done, and I compare and contrast with the way they've wronged me. And I'm like, well, they're not that bad because they didn't do my three worst things. And I think when I approach them in that uh, space, um, there's not this judgmental, top-down, you suck, I'm better sort of thing. But it's like, hey, we're all in process, and we're all sinners, and then I start asking these questions, like, are you angry, bro? You know, I ask that to myself, are you angry, bro? And, um, and I think when I sit down with someone, I need to ask, hey, is this, am I confronting them because I want them to feel the pain I'm feeling? Am I confronting them out of just lashing out and, and being vengeful? Or am I sitting down with them, And coming to a place where this conflict isn't just about me being in pain or me being offended anymore. That I can come to a place where I'm actually serving the other person and and there for their benefit. That my end goal is that I want this person to benefit from the conversation and not just enact um, hurt because I feel hurt. And also, do I love this person? At the end of the day, when I'm sitting down with them, do I actually care about their soul? Or again, is it just about me? I remember I was uh, sitting down with someone um, who was on leadership, and I wanted to just kind of ask this person to to step down a little bit. And um, I remember going into a conversation, the Holy Spirit just simply convicting me, "Do do you care about this person? And I honestly thought, you know, I don't. Like, I don't really like them, you know, and like, uh, we don't connect. And, and then God's like, before you talk to them, I want you to love them. And so I spent about 30 minutes just kind of walking around, just praying for this person and asking God to open my heart to him and, say, and appreciating him for the work that he's put in to the ministry and really feeling my heart open up. I think before we talk to someone, to say, God, help me to love them. Help me to confront them for their benefit. And then asking, God, what are you doing in this person's life? You know, and, and there's times where some of you guys have the gift of discernment or the curse of discernment, and you meet a person, and you see, like, the 15 things that they're terrible in, you know, and all their character flaws. And that's just how you perceive the world. And there's good and bad to that, Right? And I think for me, um, wanting to pastor people well, there's times where I want to confront spe- specific issues and God just gently says, hey, I'm not working on that person in that way yet. And kind of asking me to hold back and just pray over them and, and be okay with them not improving in the specific area. And I had a hard time with that until I reflected on how God does that for me, like forever. And, you know, I, I think you've experienced this as well growing As a Christian, like, God brings up two things in your life that he wants you to work on, and you swear that once you're done with those two things, that you'll be perfect, you know? And then you finally improve on that second thing, and then God brings up two more things, and you're like, man, I thought I'm perfect. And I don't know about you, but I have that experience all the time, feeling perfect and then having more crap brought up in my life. And, and then I look back, I'm like, man, I'm so thankful God didn't just lay out the 2,561 things that I suck at at one time, right? But he's patiently, um, gently bringing up one thing at a time for me. And I, I hope that I could emulate him in that. I hope that I could be someone who does that for another, who, who discerns and say, God, what are you working on in this person's life? And help me to patiently walk alongside of them. And sometimes that means holding back and being okay. And other times that means giving them a ton of space to grow because true growth never happens overnight. Right? So that means even when we sit down with someone and point something out, I get mad. I'm like, I told you, I thought you were gonna be changed in like 24 hours, right? But God's asking, are you willing to not only bring them, bring this to light, but walk with them in it? and be patient with them, and watch them relapse, and sit with them, and give them tools, and be someone who journeys next to them? Those are all really hard questions that I try to sit down and and talk myself through. And trust me, I don't do this even close to perfectly, um, but, you know, it's good advice, right? It looks good on paper, so there's that. Um, and so sometimes when I'm talking to God and he's like, yeah, I'm not working on this thing and I have to hold back. And sometimes I'm talking to God and he's like, I'm working on this thing, but are you willing to work with them or do you just want to talk to him about it and walk away? And sometimes I hold back because of that as well. All right. So once we kind of work on ourselves and ask ask ourselves about 15 questions, then we sit down with the person and I love I think it's always important, if you can, to do this one on one, face to face, eyeball to eyeball. And even just being in front of someone can open your heart to them. Um, And secondly, I, I ask, I think, clarification before confrontation. So I'm, I'm trying to understand the situation, especially if it's a one-time thing, I'm offended and there's something I could point out, I t- I've, I've like time-stamped it, right, one of those incidences. I'm like, I want to hear what they perceived in the situation because I can get ca- so caught up in my lens and how I've told the story that I forget that they have experienced Um, their line of thought and their perception and the situation in a totally different way. And I'm hoping to just sit back and listen for a little bit and gain their perspective on it. I want to come in believing that I don't have all the information, that I haven't placed judgment on this, that I could have misheard or misunderstood. You know, I just, I remember one time I worked at Ambassador Church and uh, me and the secretary were just starting off our friendship. I was kind of new on staff. And I remember picking up a check uh, from the mailbox right next to her, and then I said something like, man, sometimes I'm like, I feel like I'm completely useless, right? And she heard me say, sometimes I feel like you are completely useless. Means totally different things. (laughs) And she looked at me a little angry and said, did you just say this? And I was like, oh, no, I said I was useless, you know? But just because she stopped and clarified, it pretty much saved our relationship versus her just steaming at me for like four years, right? And so I just really appreciated her doing some clarification. I realized sometimes I'm offended or hurt. And when I just sit down, eyeball to eyeball, and ask some clarifying questions, I realized it wasn't how I told the story. It wasn't how I perceived it. Other times, it was terrible, <laughs> and, um, and I think, you know, as they share with me their perspective, and sometimes they apologize right away there, other times, I find myself having to be even more vulnerable, and again, th- these, these, uh, this situation is in-house with family, not with someone who's just abusive or who's just mean. But in this context of the verse, it's like within the community, right? Other brothers and sisters who are believers, family members. And I find myself in the best, my best moments in terms of resolution that I come to them and my temptation is to hide. My temptation is to be defensive and to attack. But instead, trying to say, here's more of my heart. Here's me being even more vulnerable. Here's me letting you hurt me again because I'm sharing my hurt with you and just letting them sit with this and just kind of sharing hey like when you when you said this I felt hurt or when you did this I've I relived this trauma in my life and just letting them empathize a little bit and then giving him or her room to share and I found that so many times when I've been able to do this well I've actually, I mean, you know, I could just have really cool people in my life, but it's the times where I've been able to do this well, humbly, for their benefit, um, you know, with love, vulnerably. I've never had a bad experience. And I'm sure some of you have had a bad experience after doing all of these things, but there's been some really powerful God moments in my life like experiencing God in these moments where I'm vulnerable and my friend's vulnerable and we apologize and we make up. And then I also think about the closest friends I have, you know, the ones that stood next to me during my wedding. And they're not just friends that I laugh with and share hobbies with, but they're friends that we've been able to do this with each other, they are friends that have been able to sit down with me, and even when it's not about me hurting them, but just about me kind of coming off of the, the right track and going my own way, them sitting down and saying, hey, I'm going to put my friendship on the line, or I'm going to put um, you liking me on the line, and really sit down and, and talk you through some things that might be more helpful in your life or some things that you're doing that are hurting other people or hurting yourself. I really pray for a community willing to do these sit-downs because there will come a point where you guys are mad at each other, where you don't like the person sitting next to you, where you don't like your small group leader. And I wonder, what if we weren't passive-aggressive? What if if we didn't cause up or put up labels but really loved each other and in humility sat down and really wanted each other to be better in a vulnerable way? You know, none, none of this isn't the hardest part. Self-reflection isn't the hardest part. I think the most difficult aspect of all of this and the thing that undergirds it all is forgiveness. You know, Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we're not able to move out of uh, labeling and gossip and judgment if we're not able to forgive first. And forgiveness, even precedes repentance. Forgiveness precedes them saying sorry. It's a choice that we make. It's a process that we go through. And it's incredibly difficult. I like this word debt because that's what it feels like. When someone hurts us and wrongs us, it's pretty much like they owe us something. And sometimes we'll say you owe me something, right? It's a it's a it's a debt that that we have suffered and that they now need to incur and make up for. That's what it feels like. Nietzsche actually talked about this in one of his books. He, he was a person who coined Superman. He was also a, a hardcore God-hater. But he had these, like, redemptive values in this Superman that he was trying to elevate humanity towards. And he goes through human history, and he says, when you wrong someone, there is a debt to that. So he goes back kind of to the barbaric stage where... If you borrow money from someone or gold from someone and you can't pay them back, you owe them that weight of gold in flesh. And that's how they used to collect. And he uses that and he extrapolates human relationship and one of the most fundamental laws of human behavior as debt. As when I wrong you or when you owe me, I get to collect from you. And then he has this vision of a Superman who lives outside of that fundamental law. And for me, that's Jesus. He does this in the most profound ways, right? He incurs our debt. It's so hard to forgive because you're saying that the debt you owe me from hurting me, the debt you owe me from causing me pain, I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to absorb it, and I'm going to let you go. And Jesus does this on the cross, in the most profound way, he takes our debt, he takes our sin, he takes the worst things we've done, and he says, you don't have to pay me back, and I will pay for it. When a hurt, is, when a hurt happens, someone has to pay, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to pay it. But then he commands us that in view of the cross and in view of his payment for our sins, in that same motion, from that same source and spring, when someone wrongs you, as you have been forgiven, as your debt has been paid, do the same for those around you. And Jesus is saying, if you don't, if you don't forgive people, you're not, you don't really get that he forgave you. Jesus is saying, if you don't forgive your debtors, you probably don't get the forgiveness of the cross and the gospel. Because if you've really wrestled with it, if you've really embodied this radical forgiveness that everything you've done wrong, he's taken on the cross. Can you turn? All right, good job. Uh, If you get that, then you are able to take the forgiveness, the debt that he's let go in your life, and to reflect that onto others. And it's a painful process. I think really absorbing someone else's wrong feels like death. It's like they owe you something, but then you pay for it twice. You pay for it on the front end when they hurt you, and it feels like death again when you let them go for it. But there's a resurrection as well. That as Jesus paid for our sins, he comes back to life. And there is this resurrection where life is given in our relationship with each other. And life is given to us where we're not holding on to wrath and anger and debt. You know, we have life in Jesus. We have relationship with Jesus because of his death paying for our sins, and then this resurrection where we are with him and we're in love with him and we experience his love. So without death, there's no resurrection. So I hope that for the people you love most, for your family here at Renew, but even for your enemies, you would be able to go through the death as Christ did but then see a resurrection come out of there where you are renewed in your relationship with your families, with your friends, with the people around you, where we imitate God and we are most like God when we forgive. We experience the resurrection and go through it most when we forgive. There's no greater experience of Jesus than receiving his forgiveness and forgiving someone else. There's no greater experience of the gospel than having our debts paid for and then reconciling in our relationship with Jesus and then turning around to people who have hurt us and forgiving their debts as well and reconciling with them. And so, who is Jesus asking us to forgive today. And there's no reason to forgive someone. We have every reason to collect. We have every reason to hold a grudge except that we zoom out of the circumstance where someone owes us, where they've wronged us, and we look at the cross. That's, only, that's the only reason we have to forgive somebody because we see the cross. Because we see Jesus forgive us. So who is God calling us to forgive because of his forgiveness? And who is Jesus asking you to talk to as you've forgiven them to sit down with them in love and humility and gentleness and for their benefit and to reconcile your relationship with them? God, we just come to you and... I'm sure that all of us have someone in mind. Someone that's really difficult to forgive. I pray, Lord, that you would help us not just to see them and their wrongs, not just to see the ways that they've hurt us again and again, but will we see the cross today as well? Will we insert the cross into um, this relationship. Because you forgive us, we forgive another. Today as we take communion, as we um, take the bread that represents Jesus' body broken for us and we take the grape juice that represents his blood shed, we think about the pain of forgiveness, the pain of taking on the debt of another and how Jesus does that for us. And because of that pain, him taking on that pain, we are reconciled. And I pray for reconciliation in our relationships as well. I would love for us just to pray for each other and, you know, in the same groups that um, you were in, uh, maybe the same person that you were complaining about, would you just pray, um, just asking God to help us forgive and asking God to help us to choose to forgive this morning. And if forgiveness feels too far away, would you pray for a desire to forgive um, the person that has hurt you? And then we come up and take communion together.